G'day, g'day. This is Rita Joyan and welcome to the Unbox Your Gift podcast, How to Turn a Passion into a Profession. My guest today is Zola Rose and she runs a social enterprise called Common Ground that helps people get into the housing market, but in a way that takes away the land from private ownership and just redistributes it into community stewardship. This is really remarkable stuff. And she's actually putting it on the ground as we speak in New Zealand. And so if ever you've thought that it was hard to get into the, the housing market and you just could not do what is required, which is commonly go get a huge mortgage uh, and then pay for the next 30 years or whatever it is to go pay off that home. What Zola has done with her social enterprise and her, her community work is developed a way and contributes to a way what's called a community land trust. And through that trust, she takes the land from private ownership, she works with local government, and then redistributes it. So people who cannot ordinarily get into the market in, and pay high mortgages, she has developed a way in which people can. Now, this social enterprise she has been running, she's built her own house in South Africa. Um, she's created her own community-based tourism program. Like she's been on the ground, grassroots, building up sustainable uh, communities for quite a long time. And she's lived in many different countries. And currently she's in New Zealand uh, pursuing that same goal to allow people to get easy access, affordable access, community-led access to housing. Um, it's remarkable social enterprise. We speak a lot about this in the podcast. So she will go into detail because it's fascinating. It's a completely different way of seeing how a market could run. Uh, whether you agree or not, it's a different perspective. And so she talks about it in great detail and she is monetizing it. She has programs. She's got a mastermind. She has uh, works with the local government, as I said, strategy sessions, mentorships, group programs. Uh, she consults all of those ways in which she can actually generate an income from providing high value to a community of uh, affordable community housing. So here is Zola Rose with the Common Ground Project. Zola, you're currently in New Zealand and I know you've, you've traveled to a lot of countries, but at, at the moment, currently New Zealand under you know, COVID situations in the world, Australia, we've just come out of lockdown in the East Coast. How's things like lockdown and face masks and physical distancing going on in New Zealand right now? Well, we are two islands, so that I think perhaps helps uh, that I'm on the South Island and the South Island is, is very few, if any, COVID cases, I'm actually not sure. Uh, so we've actually had two different kind of worlds, you know, where North was more locked down and quite restricted and the South where I am now is quite free. And then I guess it's depending on who one hangs around. I happen to be hanging around people who are more community minded. So we like to do things together. And I think it's maybe people who take responsibility for their own health and their own well-being mm. and find that there's many ways of being healthy, mental, connecting with others socially, uh, connecting with nature and eating. So I think I tried to keep myself surrounded by people who've got a positive outlook and who have that ability to be able to bring in their own wellness. Mm -hmm. And so kind of my world in a way has become smallish because I don't allow too much into my, my media that's all, all the bad news or everything. I'm not filled with all the stats of knowing what's going on everywhere. I just say, well, in my community, this is what I have control over. And where we are now in Nelson, it's fairly free and open. People, I mean, there are some uh, stores, they say, please wear masks, definitely scan in so that can be traced. Um, but yeah, the North, they've definitely been so much more restricted than us here. And the North is <laughs> capital city, Auckland. We're talking Wellington. Um, which you're in the south, so it's like uh, Queenstown. Is that correct? New Queenstown? Or? No, I'm in Nelson, which is the top of the South Island, which is just oh. over the, the the ocean, but or the strait. But it's um, yeah, world away in in that regard. 
for some reason, it hasn't yeah, migrated so much. So the north is more, yeah, Auckland, the Waikato region, okay. certain areas. Huge discussion about vaccinations and like from where, you, like in the south where you are, like is there a lot of pro and an anti or pro-vax and pro-choice? Like, is there a lot of discussion about that? Because there's a huge amount in Australia. Yeah, I think there is a lot of folks trying to find the middle ground who are not wanting to be polarizing, who want it to be, uh, you know, choice and, and a wider uh, discussion around what is ways to keep us healthy. And it's not just, uh, you know, one way that it's either vaccine or no vaccine. There's a much wider breadth of conversation. And I, the, I'm tuning into people who are opening up the breadth of conversation rather than it polarizing. Mm. And I do, I do think there are people that do uh, having polarized, but I'm seeing a lot of uh, people who have the message of don't divide us. So mm. there's a, a very much a want, a want for unity. And how do we bring that unity where people hold different points of view, yet how can we allow for unity? And in a deep care, um, there was a person that wanted to publish a news, kind of like a uh, you know, paid for um, advert that says, don't divide us. We're very concerned about the people who are just uh, being let go of their work, even though some of the work that they've listed doesn't seem like it would be a public health risk at all for that particular person to be unvaccinated. And they've said all these people have lost their livelihood, their ability to provide for their families. We're deeply concerned for these people and you know maybe future um, similarly. So there's that care and concern rather than, uh, oh yeah, they don't deserve to uh, have a livelihood anymore just because they want to treat their bodies uh, in a different way, uh, consider their own well, you know, health and well-being in a different way. So 100%, that brings me straight to the work that you do, not having people divided, making sure that people are given an opportunity to hold their ground and be sustainable because your work is called The Common Ground, which uh, talks about community housing. It talks about how to be able to have affordable housing, regenerative looking, incorporating permaculture, incorporating um, what, what you, you say, it's a diverse uh, role of players that come together to bring sustainable, affordable, community-led housing. Now, before I jump into that, because there's a lot there that I want to be able to tease out, can you tell me, please, just briefly, Zola, how did you even get into community housing and, and being an advocate for that? Wow, that's a that goes way back. Uh, uh, I think it goes back to, well, when I first took an interest in housing was as a volunteer with Habitat for Humanity while at university. I used one of my spring breaks to go down to an area that needed uh, to, there was a community that had been ravaged probably by floods or weather and when we were rebuilding. So that was my first opportunity to be involved with housing in such a way that it brings in the care and concern of community. Uh, I later looked at housing uh, under the natural building kind of methods in terms of straw bale. I, learned, uh, went to a natural building expo and learned of all the different ways that housing can be built using natural materials that already exist, you know, like bales of straw that, uh, mm -hmm. and using clay. And, and I really love the idea of being able to create my own home. It felt like that is something that was um, empowering and creative and connecting. And, and a lot of that natural building is very community centered. Usually there isn't a person who just builds their own house naturally completely by themselves. Usually they do bring in friends or they make an event out of it. And it's really a, mm -hmm. a, an experience. Mm -hmm. And that's where I you know, started shifting my mindset. And, and in, I, I have lived in 12 different countries and um, lived in South Africa in the rural area where everyone builds their own home. Everyone contributes to building their house in some way. My colleague, she had a, um, a mud, mud clay area. So she uh, was making her own mud bricks, mm. uh, you know, having a form, putting them in the sun to dry. She hired somebody to help her to make the framing for it. You know, somebody who's got a bit more building experience, but someone from the community. She then hired somebody who's um, more expert in thatching. So the thatching is grasses that were from the local 
community that are harvested at a particular time of year that when they're dry enough, they're bundled up by people in the local community. So she hired that person to help her to create her roof. She laid the blocks you know, herself and she was part of that process. And so was the community. And that is typical for you know, African ways. And then maybe many other rural um, you know, indigenous areas of the world where housing is more self-created, it's community created, and it's within usually using some uh, natural recycled material. So that's my, my real connection, yeah. you know, to seeing yeah. it being done and participating myself. And, and I've had my own housing challenges over time where mm -hmm. I have felt the injustice. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe that our life experiences, if they are hard or challenging, if we can use that as a learning and a way of being able to put forward, well, how can I make this experience valuable to others? Then th I take that my housing challenges to be um, part of my fuel mm -hmm. around the housing justice work that I do. So there's many components to the housing work I do. You know, it's that cultural piece where I've traveled and lived and experienced that. It's the social piece of doing it with others and feeling working with Habitat. Wow, this is great. Look at all of us, you know, on this building site together. It's the environmental, like really tapping into, wow, this is wonderful that these houses can be just made out of the clay from over there and the thatching from over there and the wood from over there. Um, and then it's the, the economic piece, which is, you know, if I'm participating and if these materials come from, from local sourced, then it's affordable, then I can actually afford to live in my house without slaving away for 30 years of my life to pay a, you know, a, a very large bank loan for overpriced materials. Um, and then there's the land aspect of it, which is a whole nother dynamic, which maybe we'll get into, but you, know, you, you talk about housing, but housing needs to sit on some land. And so that, again, having lived internationally, I've seen that aspect being done in very different ways, which when I came to this country of New Zealand, they put the two together. It was not separable. And that is also a dynamic that makes housing very unaffordable. And so given what I'd studied and what I'd seen um, from, from other countries and with my own studies that I could uh, bring in a paradigm of separating land from housing uh, ownership, uh, price, et cetera. So that's another dynamic that I work with here. So when you say separate housing from the land itself, so how, how about, how do you go about that? Because you obviously you said you need the land to build the house. So how does that work? So there's different ways that uh, one can, can see land, but I, the name common ground of my social enterprise means that the ground that we all walk on I personally don't believe one can own Mother Earth. I don't feel comfortable saying I own this Mother Earth, it's mine, or we're only my generations because the bees don't know any different, the water doesn't know any different, the wind doesn't know any, yeah, right? All the elements of, of life pass through that piece of, of, of soil. And in fact, that piece of ground, even as it is, adds value to everything else around and everything else around adds value to that ground. It's not got, really, it doesn't have boundaries. Boundaries is a manufactured, uh, kind of a strange concept, actually, if we were to look at it in, in depth and actually natural, you know, nature doesn't have those kinds of boundaries. And so that concept that land is actually of common uh, stewardship, of common um, benefit, mm -hmm. of common purpose, that's what I think all land is and, and, and how we steward that land and, and look after it can be done in different ways, depending on where the land is. But so in terms of separating housing from land, um, the land in areas can be brought into community stewardship under a trust model. So the land is transferred because most land is in private ownership, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's either held by um, government, which is in a way, well, it's public, but you know, it is still owned. And then there's a lot of private ownership where, um, and that goes really into talk around colonialization and imperialism around who got the right to take land from others who were just not claiming it as theirs and stewarding it, mm -hmm. taking it over 
um, claiming it to be theirs, giving it a title, and then setting those boundaries and, and, and basically keeping people out. And then, of course, making lots and lots of, of money over time on it. So if we go back to how land was before those ideas of colonialism, imperialism, capitalism, and all that, then we end up with land actually being of common uh, property. So if we go back to that and we can release that land into uh, stewardship, I set up a community land trust. So the community land trust is a nonprofit organization where there's different board members, board members who have different skill sets, who are of the community, but who also have a high level of skill in finance, legal, community development. So it's a tripartite board, which means some people of who would be living on the land directly, mm -hmm. some people who live around that land, and then others who are skilled at, at that kind of organizational level of managing. You know, it's an organizational entity that's set up then to steward in perpetuity, uh, you know, forever, basically, uh, that, that piece of land. And then there is no price to the land at that point. The land becomes priceless or the land becomes, you know, full of worth, but for, you know, but for everybody, but it doesn't have a monetary price on it at that point. So Heaven, how would you distribute that land? So that's where the trust comes in. So the nonprofit entity that is set up, mm -hmm. we'll call it the community land trust, it could also be called a housing trust, but the community land trust is the most common form of this kind of separating land from private ownership for the uh, purpose of either. Um, community land trust is most often now used for housing, but the history of community land trust is actually under environmental stewardship. The first community land trust was used as a way of saving a rural area from being overly strip mined where all the minerals and all the um, timber was taken and there were mudslides and it actually eradicated this one community economically as, as well as environmentally and the land trust was set up to bring that piece of regenerate that piece of land and regenerate the local economy then it was used by black farmers who had been working on farmland for you know from slavery into freedom and had never been able to own land again because of the cost of private ownership it was too expensive so a land trust was set up uh, in terms of agricultural economic ability to own or wealth to, to steward and, and earn income from that land. So the land trust was a way for people farming on that land to benefit from their own so, economic so, activities. So with the distribution, so the land trust takes account for how it's distributed. So what do people put their name on a list and say, yes, I'd like, a, a, I'd like to build on this piece of land. Like I can't say I wanna own it. So I'd like to steward the land. And so is that, and then they go through the list and then they decipher who is deserving of getting it. Is that how it works? Well, the community land trust, it depends. Uh, it's been used in urban areas where there's problems of gentrification. So gentrification is where an area of where people have been living for quite a while, mm -hmm. might have generations, but where you get new, a few new owners who raise the price of the property in that area altogether, and it becomes too expensive for the people who live there to continue to live there. If they've been renting, most likely that looks like an increase in rent beyond what they're able to afford. If they've bought, it could look like an increase in property rates that's too high for them to afford. Either way, the gentrification basically makes for people to not be able to stay in place where they have currently established community roots and you know children in schools and, and that kind of thing. So the land trust has been used to stop gentrification in inner city areas where basically the land underneath that current, it's not a new development of housing necessarily, it's a buying or a transferring of that land out of private ownership into community stewardship, thereby taking that cost out. And then the community land trust would uh, be also owning the houses. So the community land trust can either own houses or build if the land doesn't have anything on it to begin with. So you have a brown fields development in inner city or a green field slightly, you know, in, in open land. Okay, so the community now. land trust both has two parts to it. It's once it's set up with its board, it looks where land can be um, basically freed up. So sometimes it means it needs funding to be able to purchase it. And then that land is uh, in perpetuity in the community land trust. And then it moves into either owning of the houses that are on that land or building of houses. 
And so in a way here in New Zealand, it would fall under the category of a community housing provider or a partner of a community housing provider. Those being that list that you were talking about, those people that have put themselves down as falling between the cracks. They, because people do have to be able to still engage with a bit of a mortgage or a loan with the bank, even though it will be reduced, they do still need to have some income. So it's usually people fitting between a certain income bracket. So they earn a certain amount to be able to repay uh, what would be a very reasonable mortgage, but just too little to qualify for what banks typically would uh, qualify a, a, you know, a family to be able to rent on them or buy on the market, which actually, because our, in New Zealand, our uh, rents and our purchasing is going you know, 25% a year higher, you know, and inflation's only what, 3% or something. It's that gap or those people who are falling into that gap are growing exponentially. And so the Community Land Trust fills that need both for keeping the cost. So on a Community Land Trust, those houses never get more expensive than the cost of living itself. So as anyone's wages would increase, you know, with the overall cost of living, the CPI index, there the houses are uh, priced at that same CPI index. So if a family buys in at a cost, so the land is separated from the house, so you're not someone, someone who would be buying a community land trust house mm-hmm. would not be paying for the land, they'd be paying for a lease of the land, which is usually 1.5% of the price of that land. So it's a in perpetuity lease, a 99 year that can be actually renewed. So you're looking at you know five generations forward of having that stability. And then they're only purchasing the cost of the house. And usually the cost of the house, because it is facilitated by a nonprofit, non-speculative entity, such as a community housing provider, mm. it then doesn't have that profit add-on, which is usually at least 20%. And then there's usually a facilitation of some sort of subsidy as well. So you could have a progressive home ownership subsidy. You could have a rent to buy subsidy. Uh, You could have a shared equity subsidy. So the community housing provider also facilitates for that subsidy to go along with the mortgage. So let's say the house costs 300,000 to buy. The subsidy is applied, let's say it's a shared equity of 100,000. The family only needs to then take out a bank loan of 200000 And usually the deposit as well can be negotiated because at the moment it's a 20% deposit for a bank to be able to loan. Sometimes that can be negotiated down as low as 5%. So you're looking at a family that can get in uh, on a house that if you included the cost of the land and the, let's say the house costs 300 to build, you have add an extra 20% added on. So you have the house maybe selling for 450 if it's from a developer, then they add on the cost of the land, which might be another 200, 300,000. So looking at a house that's on the market, 750,000 through a community land trust with a community housing provider coming as a partner, you're looking at a family being able to take out a mortgage of 200,000 with with even some assistance with that as well. So radically, radically different. And really the house and the land still looks the same. You know, it's all still the same. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at such a cost savings and it's not only the same because it might be the same at the outset, but what a community land trust does is it also stewards the community as a whole. So it doesn't see that homeowner, that house, that property as it as as just an object an entity a one piece you know that is an island unto itself it actually sees the family the home the land as an extension of the greater well-being of that community so when we look through the lens of well-being and we look at this family this house this land through the lens of well-being we say what is culturally appropriate for this family what is socially connecting for this family, you know, family in the wider community? What is ecologically resilient for this area? Mm-hmm. And what is economically viable for this family and this area? And it takes a very holistic, and that's where the term regenerative comes in. So the term regenerative looks at place 
from a nested system. So nested meaning we have our, you know, our, our family, our home. It's nested within a neighborhood, you know, a wider community, shops, schools, nested within a watershed or an ecological area that is wider than, you know, than the human concepts that you know, the human you know, structures mm -hmm. that have been created. Mm -hmm. And we look at all of those nested systems and we work with all of it as a whole, taking into consideration generations into the future, considering the cultural, economic, social, and ecological, and that's how we design our housing. Okay. So if I get this correct, then the philosophy behind regenerative or community-led housing is the, is the philosophy and the value that nobody owns the land, the and belong the land belongs to the people and as such there is a trust that's built called the land sorry what did you call it the community land trust community land trust so with the community land trust they are the board the group of people that organize the actual the ability to just call the land everyone's the ability to now distribute the land to the people who would be most benefited is going to fall through the cracks they would then facilitate the mortgage or they try and get the mortgage of the house to a bank where they can get that loan at a more reasonable price so that they can enter the market and they're only paying the mortgage for the building and not the land because the land is everyone's on a 99 year lease mm -hmm. and so after that then obviously you're looking at building the house and that is for that the building actually itself is now incorporated from everyone coming in and helping is that how it works it can do. It depends on how the family wants to build or the community housing provider would build it or the community group itself. If they're a community led group and they have access to other resources, it might be that they keep that um, within you know, the neighborhood who would be you know, living there and who would like to, to contribute. So there's a lot of diversity in how the houses would be uh, situated within each other. So houses are sort of, the, the housing itself is sort of like in conversation with the land yeah. and with the other houses. So housing, a house is not seen as, just like when you go to cook a meal, right? You don't see the onion as, as its own thing. You don't think about, now how am I gonna taste only this onion? You think about, well, this onion's gonna add value in its flavor and I'll be able to taste the onion, but it's not, the only thing I'm going to taste. Mm. It's the same thing with the housing. The house is like the onion, right? It's a piece of the recipe, a piece of the flavor. But what makes up all of a nutritious meal is all the different pieces of that land, of the community, of the people, and of the design of that space. And so how do people, how do people move in a space, right? What creates is we call in placemaking bumping spaces. So how do we create that with how we situate even the houses on the land mm -hmm. uh, for social you know, uh, connection? How do we uh, situate them for maximum ecological benefit? Might be passive solar, which means that you situate everything facing north so that people you know, have that ability to capture the sun. So all of those dynamics are taken into consideration because we've taken the speculative nature mm -hmm. out of housing, right? We're not... Profit is not our driving motivation. The well-being of people and the community and, and, and of place is actually of our primary. And we look through that lens and there we make all of our decisions. So there's no one right way, right? You could put in onion, carrot and all of those bits and pieces and say, you know, give those things to five people and you're gonna end up perhaps with five very different meals. Yeah. And it's the same thing when you have community led housing and we enable, right? So in this case, we might provide the gas for cooking and the stovetop, right? And the cooking utensils. Mm -hmm. And we give those five people, now here, you've been given some basics to be able to make mm -hmm. and go for it, you know? See what you come up with that really resonates with what you, what you value in terms of flavor and uh, you know, spice and that kind of thing. And it's the same thing with housing. If we enable to a certain extent uh, communities to be able to, provide their own housing solutions and we give them a little bit of training and we give them a little bit of this access to funding and some skills around organizing actually communities can be perfectly capable as we've seen through his history and as we've seen around the world uh, looking at different cultures people actually are perfectly capable of providing their own housing solutions 
But what we find in, in this overly regulated, which is wonderful, we've got great regulated environments here in New Zealand, which means we're health, you know, we're safe, we've got beautiful spaces where there's not a lot of rubbish and everything works fairly well. So in one way, the checks and balances have lent to us being able to have a reliable, accountable society. On the other hand, there's actually barriers and restrictions that are just in place kind of to safeguard some things against like the worst possible cases, mm. but they're a blanket policy that actually haven't taken into account the crisis, the housing crisis we have, nor have they taken account the fact that there is this intermediary housing sector, this um, collective housing sector, this people-led housing sector that actually needs some of those barriers which have been put in place for the speculative developers, you know, to keep them in making sure they don't take too much advantage, they're not too greedy, you know, because um, they work with minimum standards rather than maximum standards. But we need to apply different policies when you've got community leading themselves. It is a totally different, just like we don't parent our children as teenagers, you know, we parent them differently than we do when, we, when they were little, they needed a lot more safeguarding and a lot more of us making decisions for them, right? And, that, and that's what council and that's what government does for us. Mm -hmm. Now we're teenagers and we can actually, we need to be able to, to show that we can make good decisions yeah. as well. You know, maybe we still need some training. Maybe we still need a little bit of handholding, but certainly not as much. And I believe we're moving into that stage of, you know, adolescence with our housing here in this country. And we need to look at yeah, how do we now change the way that we you know, parent our housing so that we allow for the flourishing of what is coming from the groundswell of people of what they want and need? Mm. And the government can't provide all the housing. We're tens of thousands of houses behind. We need to be able to find so many other ways of empowering communities mm. and looking at the policies that enable or uh, create barriers for that. So this is really interesting because how would a government there, because I know you've, you've established one of the affordable housings in the Community Land Trust in New Zealand. Um, and I'm just wondering, how do governments take to this? I mean, are they accepting it? Are, they, are we treading on their toes? Do they think that the, the power is going to be taken out of their hands? Do they think there's this community that's going to be so left of the middle that they won't know how to actually involve them because they'll be doing their own thing and not participating as much as they are currently? Like, how are they taking all of this? Well, what I've been told is that government's slow to move, right? When things mm -hmm. get into parliament, things go a lot slower. So really my focus is on working at the local government because local government in this country is starting to be a little bit decentralized a little bit more than it was before. It's starting to have more of a regional focus, like hey, what do your people need rather than you know, government from the central deciding. So that's a bit of a help when we look at looking at the local government level and working, but we've actually, I'm a part of a nonprofit that was set up called the Housing Innovation Society that represents this collective uh, middle zone of housing. And we have an urban, housing um, development minister, you know, a department for housing and urban development. They recently had a policy statement allowing for contributions and submissions on that. And as part of the nonprofit uh, committee, we made a submission around that collective housing, who were representing the kinds of people who need this, as well as we did represent the barriers and challenges that are faced. We said this needs to be incorporated into the new policy statement. And it was just released a couple of weeks ago. And the wording that we used and we asked for to be reflected has come through the policy statement. So government is recognizing. So there's still a long way to go in terms of, well, how does that translate into policies? Mm -hmm. How does that translate into money being channeled mm -hmm. to those places? But it's there. Mm -hmm. And it's the start of us then talking to them about, right, so you've said that as a statement, we need you to work on these policies specifically. You know, we need funding specifically. So there's those of us who are working in that area of advocacy, of relationships with policymakers, with government, to be able to help them to understand by showing them case studies from other countries, case studies even from our own country where there's been some innovation, 
um, and being able to keep feeding back to them data, stories. It's, it's really, really a relationship and it's seeing uh, not an us and a them, but seeing as a we and how do we continuously work collaboratively to be able to make it happen. Mm. And I, I believe it's around relationships as well, at, like I said, at the local level. And I think government is, there's always those that are wary, but there's a lot more that feel like we need, do need solutions and we need to be taking risks as the government might see it mm. to be having a pilot here and a pilot there, right? We need to see, all right, feels a little bit risky stepping in, but all right, there's a um, 10 housing development that's come through and they're proposing this as a, a means to, to uh, develop differently than what we have normally approved. Yeah, let's go ahead and see how this is gonna play out. So government's starting to step into um, a little bit of, yes, we have a housing crisis and we really do need to be doing things differently. And that means, yeah, stepping into sometimes what feels uncomfortable. And I think if we continue to speak about the collaborative approach that we're looking at, um, not separating ourselves, but working with local government. Mm -hmm. There's actually, interestingly enough, I've talked to a few folks who've had innovative housing developments where they've had the local council support or regional. And it's sometimes it's been the neighbors and the surrounding community that are fearful. And so again, that's where the regenerative approach comes in, which is really starting from the ground of who's in the community, who could be seen as someone who might block this innovative mm -hmm. housing because they just don't know enough or they want to keep things as they are. Mm -hmm. They're sitting in a place of privilege. They don't know what it feels like to not have. And this uh, community uh, developed, this housing development is, is for solving a problem, but they don't really get it. So it's around those conversations with where housing would be developed. It's really bringing in the community who might block Mm -hmm. And having those conversations very early on, because interestingly, more often than not, it's the surrounding community and the local government is on board. They'd love to see it. And they actually feel a bit tied by the naysayers, mm -hmm. the NIMBYs. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we need to consider all of that. And uh, I'm seeing that our local government here in this country is wanting to move into that space of innovation. And I'm very hopeful, you know, that we're going to see like, for instance, when I brought the community land trust idea to Hamilton, I spoke to the mayor at the time, and the mayor was not, he was quite risk averse about the idea. I was also speaking with the community, uh, well, it's the Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust, which had just moved into operating like a community land trust where the mayor was on board. The district had policies to be able to make it very successful. The mayor had been, it had already been 10 years that it had been successful. So after I spoke with the mayor and I suggested that the mayor speak in Hamilton, speak to the mayor in Queenstown, he got it. The mayor in Hamilton got it. He was like, ah, okay, now I see it actually works in place. I hear another mayor who's, you know, it, you know it's working for that region. And he took, all of a sudden, the mayor contacted me and said, okay, I'm on board. The idea, I'm ready to put my weight behind it. Mm -hmm. And then the incumbent mayor also met with me and said, you know, I'm coming into this land trust being in formation and I'm gonna need to take it over. I really need to feel comfortable with it to be able to put my weight behind it. And so meeting with that mayor, we had a long talk and she wanted to hear from me historically you know, how has it worked geographically? How has it worked? She wanted to know, you know, what does it look like in all, the, in all of its variations? And when I was able to speak life into the concept, she was like, all right, yeah, let's give it a go. I think we need this for our region. Oh my God. So this is, this is quite remarkable because when you talk about the, the process of all of that, here in Canberra, Australia, the government, because there's no local government, there's just one level of government in the territory that I live in, they actually provide at times throughout the year, not all the time, um, pieces of land that they lease out to people. So you're renting the land to be able to build on it so that most people then, well, it's very similar, but with the people here actually have to rent the land, not buy it, and then have to get a mortgage if they can't afford to actually build the actual thing, uh, the actual building of the house. And that's how it's 
circumvent it or, you know, how they're trying to incorporate people into the market here in Canberra. But in your case, the, the way that you're going about it is there's no rent for the land. The land is yours and or the leasing it for 99 years and you're just getting the mortgage for the building. My, my question about that is, uh, how have you established a community at the moment? Has there been an establishment where this is actually got underway and you can point to it and say, look, this is the success story or this is our progress story? Is there anything like that at the moment? The only one in this country, the Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust that I mentioned, they had started in as a different model of where the houses could go back to market rate after the family had gotten all of that subsidy or you know, assistance with getting into the house. Their, 10 years ago, their model was that the families could you know, pay off the mortgage as, as quickly as they could, which would be you know, fairly quick because it's, it's reduced, quite a bit reduced, but then they'd go to sell it on the market and who was benefiting? It was the families only in you know, that one family who was benefiting rather than the wider community. So the Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust over the last um, two years has mm -hmm. refined their model to basically look like a community land trust model, which is where I told you that it's got the formula for resale set in where the house owner has to sell back to the trust. Mm -hmm. And the trust has already had, has that basically agreed upon buyback rate. Yeah. And, and, and then the family hopefully would have saved in other ways. They would have put their money in other assets Mm -hmm. other stocks, however they wanted to invest that savings that they would have gotten between market and what they got with the land trust mm -hmm. or the housing trust. And, and they would have that nest egg too if they wanted to go back into a regular market. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they downsize because maybe they had a bunch of kids that have now since, you know, gone to do their uni or, you know, get jobs. And now there are only two left in the house. And so they don't need the same kind of house, the same size anyway. So a lot can shift with a family where, it's not like they're trying to buy a replication of what they've already had before. They're looking mm -hmm. in a different place, a different size. So that, that, that works for families in that way. So if we look at the Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust, we see very much a beautifully working model. The other thing which is quite important about the community, the Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust is that they've also got inclusionary zoning, a very important part of being able to get land made available. So the two go hand in hand. So we're trying to get inclusionary zoning in Hamilton, where, where I was living, mm -hmm. and Auckland is also trying to get it. And I believe maybe in other parts of the country, they're trying to get it. So it's a matter of understanding it and then advocating for it. So it's already been done for 12 years. So the way inclusionary zoning works is that if there is going to be a developer who comes to the council or the district in the case of Queenstown to say, I'd like, um, you know, I have this piece of land, I've been sitting on it for ages, I'm now ready to develop it into a housing development as they would do. Well, the district says, okay, you can do that. You have the permission to zone, you know, have it zoned and whatever, but 10% of the land goes to us as the district or 10% of the value of that land goes to us as the district, the district then redirects it to the housing trust. The housing trust then either takes the land or takes the equivalent in money to find land to buy somewhere else if it's not in that same piece as the developer. Because sometimes the developer has a certain genre of housing and the land trust wouldn't be able to match that um, in terms of you know, economically. So in that case, it, it works for them to just take the money and, and do that elsewhere. And in some cases, the developers like, sure, you can have that, you know, that piece of land over there is, is, is fine. You can do your housing trust. You can do your housing on that piece of land that's, uh, you know, sort of connected, but it's free land, basically. It's free land. And so the Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust has millions in their, uh, uh, you know, ability in their bank account because of the inclusionary zoning. So when I came to this country five years ago, I, and I said about this community land trust being able to have land out of private ownership and into public stewardship. People kept saying, but how can we get this land? It's so expensive. And I said, actually, land isn't expensive. And I believe I'm going to be able to get some free land. And people looked at me incredulously. They couldn't believe that I was suggesting that I could be able to free land and get it for free. Because I knew what I was talking about. I knew of inclusionary zoning already. 
I, I wasn't I wasn't saying yes, I'll institute inclusionary zoning, but I, I knew it was part of the process, you know, once the land trust was set up, because you need the land trust to be able to take yeah. <laughs> stewardship of that of that land once it's freed. But I said, believe, believe me, there will be land that is free for us to use. And all you have to do is look, oh yeah, Queenstown, free land. So what I what I what I what my message also is to people is that if you feel shocked by a statement like I can get free land, you know, actually feel into that possibility, you know, like it's it's it is magic and it's not magic, you know, like it is possible. It's possible because we are so conditioned to believe certain things are true. And we don't sometimes allow ourselves the realm of possibility mm -hmm. to think outside of our own box. And those of us who've lived in other countries, who've lived in villages, you know, who studied community development from village all the way to urban and developed countries, you know, there's a lot when we talk about undeveloped countries. Actually, there's a lot that is really highly refined in undeveloped countries that we actually don't give enough credit to. Mm. Undeveloped countries actually can steward their environment incredibly well. Undeveloped countries can be able to be living in harmony with the nature around them without you know, causing mass destruction. Mm. You know, we look at undeveloped countries as, oh, they need developing. When actually, when we look at some of what they've got, the wisdom of those communities that hasn't been colonialized and imperialized and capitalized, mm. right? Because there's layers of that too, right? You can go into a rural area that's been a bit brainwashed as to with capitalism and things like that. You can go into rural areas in Africa and find heavy duty fertilizers, you know, synthetic mm. stuff, because that's what's been sort of sold through government programs and things like that. But if you look at more indigenous uh, communities, I would say. There's a, an amazing wisdom that can be tapped into. Um, like I refer in one of my YouTube videos about the wisdom of the community in the area that I lived in South Africa and the Zulu community. And it's the same thing around the land stewardship that if I were to go into that Zulu community and talk to the chief, now the chief is connected to a a bunch of elders. So he's not the supreme or she's not the supreme mm -hmm. being, but they are the, you know, the representative of the area. But I go, I go to the chief and I say, I would like to build my house and uh, grow some food here in this community, preferably in this part of the community. The chief then goes out and identifies, oh, there's a piece of land that would be good for you. What do you think? Yeah. Okay. That looks great. So the sort of definitions of that land is, is given. And then the chief says, right, so I'd like you to come to my house on this such and such a date and we're going to negotiate. And so the community who surrounds that piece of land is invited. All of them come, all the homeowners, everybody from that community come to the chief's house. I would be invited to the chief's house. I'd supply the drink uh, for the party. And we talk about what does it mean for me to be on that piece of land? What do I wanna do there? How am I going to contribute to the local community? You know, who am I as a, as a being in this, in the relationship of being in this community? And that's usually a twice held negotiation initially, and then there's a, usually a deeper dive. And at the end, the chief and the rest of the community say, yeah, we think you'd be an asset to this community. You're able to occupy. So there's a permission to occupy, you know, for as long as, you are you are living and working there. But if I say, thanks, great, love that piece of land. And then I go back to the city and I'm like, I got my little piece of land, you know, out in the rural area, but I'm not farming it and I'm mm. not building on it. And I'm hardly ever there. Mm. The community's gonna say, well, what good are you? You know, like we allowed you to be here because you said you were gonna be an asset, that you were gonna be in relationship with us mm. on that land. You're gonna be a member of the community but you're not. It's just that land is just sitting there. So eventually the chief would say, it's not yours anymore, you know? 
it's now belong, you know, it kind of gets absorbed back into the community and for the next person who actually will build their house and will will farm that land and make use of it. And that's so I would think you would need some policing around that because if someone's disagreeing with that, they've moved away and uh, well, that's my land, I will come and go and that's fine, but that's why there's the structures of society in terms of policing and being able to the laws and rules come into play because when something like that happens then you don't want violence and chaos taking over do you know what well I mean? that is part of the agreement anybody who has a permission to occupy knows that if they don't occupy that space it will be reabsorbed back and the community is very strong in the community policing you know so there's no higher authority needed beyond the community and the chief to be able to say and, and of course in negotiation it's not like oh we haven't seen you by the way we've reappropriated your piece of land it's like hey next time you come we got to have a meeting what's your plan are you going to be building and farming on it if you don't see that happening you know it's just obviously not the right time for you to be here we've got other people that would bet make better use of that land so I want to go into the business aspect of things, but before I do, do you feel that something like that can happen in the urban aspect, like downtown Auckland, uh, the, the CBD of Sydney, Australia? Do you think something like what you're saying can actually take place in the urban developments of Sydney? Well, I, I think the Community Land Trust acts in that same way, because obviously a Zulu community with generations of cultural etiquette really everybody understands the norms and values of that particular community mm -hmm. and there's a coming into the community that um, is a sort of like a birthing process you know but in an urban environment very different you got a lot of different cultures and understanding yeah. of how life works mm -hmm. so in that regard the community land trust holds the norms and values for the land you know the organization sets up what are our values what do we hold true. So for instance, in the community land trust that I helped set up in Hamilton, environmental stewardship is part of the values of that nonprofit, which you might not find in other community land trusts that are set up. It might just be housing equity, right? Okay. So the gentrification issue and people being able to afford housing or the connectedness of the people is primary what they are about. But our region is quite concerned about you know, obviously, maybe it's just the time that we're in around climate and the fact that our region has set targets for climate reduction, uh, emissions reduction and, and well-being of our environment. So I said that's really important for a land trust. And obviously, land includes the biodiversity on the land and the water and the soil and all of that. We need to have an environmental value that stewards, first and foremost, the land before we even put people on. Okay. So the regenerative. I, I just want to yes. stop from there for a second, Zola, because I really want to get into the business aspect of things before oh, yes. we run out of time. So you've set up the social enterprise. It's called the Common Ground, where you're actually doing exactly what we've discussed throughout this whole time, which is the development of community-led housing. How have you been able to now turn this into a business? So there are folks that are stepping into basically a developer role. So developers either have a lot of business experience or sometimes they've studied it as a development manager in a five-year course. But we've got people who now wanna do their own development. So they've read books on uh, co-housing. They've read books on cooperative housing. They've watched YouTube videos. So they have a lot of information. They know other communities have done it. but actually every community because place is so important you know in terms of where i am is it urban is it rural you know what what are the, the policies who actually wants to build what it's all quite specific so there needs to be a, basically a guide because there is no guide for those who want to just step in as a lay person yeah. to being able to do this work also as you were saying local government oh aren't they feeling like a little bit like out of place like well, local government in, in this country doesn't normally partner with housing, but it's now stepping into the role of let's facilitate housing. Mm -hmm. So government's starting to figure out, well, how do we do this? How do we connect to people that want to develop their own housing? So in that way, I form a liaison or a facilitation between local yes. government and those who sort of take a more leadership role as to bringing about a housing uh, outcome. 
It could be working with, um, in this case, the expertise of those who do the nuts and bolts parts of the structural development of the housing. So we want people who, again, are values-based. We don't just want any old construction company or any old land surveyor or any old engineer. We want actually a values-driven group of professionals where when we get around the table, we're not fighting around concepts of, but we want local water. Oh no, we have to do you know the, the way council does it. We actually want an innovative group of professionals working together who really put that, what I call housing and service to life. So if we put life at the center of our discussions and of our criteria by which we make decisions, it actually looks very different than a conventional development. And that really is the thread and it's quite, a, it's quite a position to hold as a facilitator to bring, keep bringing people back to what are our values, what's the criteria, and when there becomes challenges, as there would be even in a, in a conventional development, it's really being able to hold true and being able to say this vision and this value set is more important than you know, giving up and saying, oh, you know, it's too hard. Mm -hmm. And it's holding that. So as a role of facilitator, that's my role I can play. There's other funding, as I mentioned to you, around the progressive home ownership, the shared equity, the rent to buy. So a community-led group really does have a focus on affordability. They have that non-speculative approach. And there's also banks that are new to working with these kind of groups. So I help to make the the understanding of what's out there in terms of affordable mechanisms that they could, and to link up with those folks that are providing those affordability mechanisms. So essentially, going to the, the space where community-led development and going to it, you would be the facilitator to let them know what's going on, what they need to do. They would hire you, your skills, your service in terms of consulting to get them to go into that space and be able to, you know, for you to be able to kind of like work as an agent kind of thing, a role. Is that yeah. So if you consider the the um, skipper of a, of a boat or the captain of a boat kind of comes to me where the people who are in the boat say, this is where we want to go. We've got, you know, this destination. Yeah. I know the weather conditions and it's gonna get pretty hairy at times. Mm -hmm. I know how to navigate you know, the waves and the winds and things like that. And I'm gonna be able to keep us safe, or at least when things get rough, be able to have processes that allow us to come back to a place of, of safety. And I'm taking the direction as captain, it's not my destination. I've just been hired you know, to be, be able to get us from where we are now to where we wanna be. But there's a lot in between. There's a lot of unknowns in the big, big ocean, what we're going to, you know, even nature. I don't necessarily as a captain know exactly what we're going to encounter. Mm -hmm. I know from past experience, but it's also in a way we're going to new territory, the new ocean perhaps, right? So as a captain, there's a lot that I can do to help this group to stay safe, to keep us all together um, and to be able to keep saying, I, yes, we're, we're, we're on track. We might have gone slightly off track, but yeah, I'm re-navigating us there. And so they would hire me to take on that, that captain role, which is trainer, like, okay, now we're going to learn some safety stuff. Mm -hmm. So as a, as, a, as a consultant, I also say, well, what are the skills and what is the mindset that we need in order to do housing and service to life? You might not have learned permaculture in school or anywhere else, but we're going to use these design principles to be able to make our housing community. So it might be exposing and training and leading around the permaculture design, or it might be, okay, we're not sure how we're going to work as a collaborative group. There seems to be some, you know, pulling apart emotional stuff. Okay, well, let's step back and let's work on this collaborative nature of our group. And so all along the way, yeah, there are things to learn, there are things to practice and things to do as we journey to our destination. So briefly, how do people find out about you? How do you find people to work with? So I have a YouTube channel where some of the concepts that I'm talking about are mm -hmm. able to be um, understood by other people. So when I say inclusionary zoning and that I think it's a, a very useful tool for an area, then people know, and I throw that word out, what is it and how could I possibly use it? So then my YouTube channel also interviews those who've done it before. So the communities that have gone through all of the 
challenges and made it to the other end to be established. We want to hear those success stories. Uh, so I do those interviews. So anyway, my YouTube channel is a way to both learn about new concepts and what's coming forward in this sector, as well as be inspired and um, empowered with you know, the knowledge of how it can be done. And I also have um, my website, which has all the information about it. I have a women revolutionizing housing group, which are women who are coming together. Uh, I have uh, two times a month Zooms where we get together to talk about these concepts and how as women, we're stepping into a more leadership role in, in how we create our own housing solutions. And, and what's the contact address um, Facebook, for people yeah. to contact you? Hey? What's the contact address for people to, if they want to be able uh, to? So commonground.net.nz is the website, and um, Zola at commonground.net.nz. And so people could check out the website, see all the different things that I talk about. And then I have a discovery call button. You know, people can book to see, oh, this is the idea that I have. And, and then I say, oh, well, I think that I can work with you or help you in this way. So people can work with me in a small way to just get clarity around a kind of like a vague idea, but where they feel they've got a calling and I help to get, you know, make some structure around that. Two, I have a quarterly mentor package. So people that want to step in and start to drive their own project and see traction, mm -hmm. I can help them with that. Mm -hmm. And then I've got uh, a mastermind. So these are people who are already stepping into that but who want to be with others who are going through a similar experience and share the wisdom and skills and be held accountable as a group. And that's what I'm calling an accelerator mastermind program because there's actually more and more people who are doing it, but they're feeling quite scattered, even though we've, we're a small country, you know, still quite far from each other geographically because it's actually across the country from north to south, east to west, communities are springing up. So I also have this program to bring us together for a six month period of time. And after that six months, the connections are, are strong. And if you know, they keep connected to who they want to stay connected to to carry on in, on that journey. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and, oh, connecting, oh. And, and connecting the professionals who align with the in service to life um, Kopaka or, or mission. Okay then, that's fantastic. So what I wanna do uh, at this point is just go through some rapid fire questions. And the first answer is the right answer. You don't need to overthink it. It's just the first word that comes into your mind, okay? So the first question is, your greatest tool for being able to market your work? Probably mm, greatest tool. Mm, well, I, um, it's either website or YouTube. The, okay. two, the two go hand in hand. Yeah, I have to have the website for them to be able to... Uh, Purchase, yeah. The yeah. hardest part about turning a passion into a profession? It's really around the monetizing because we quite often just do what we do because we love it. And mm -hmm. it's very easy to just keep going and not put a price. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's really formulating something that adds value. Uh, yeah, that can have a price to it. What's the easiest part of turning a passion into a profession? It's just this constant drive. I personally wake up, you know, just literally springing out of bed most of the time before my alarm goes off with too many ideas. You know, it's, it's quite often rain myself in, but it's really that internal fire and, um, and the people that I work with. I, I luckily, because I've chosen to, to work with the people that most inspire me. So it's like this, uh, you know, great every day I get to meet wonderful people. What's the greatest lesson you've learned during this journey? Mentorship and reaching out to others that are on this similar, what I call regenerative entrepreneur mission. So those who are heart-centered businesses and really keeping those relationships strong. Are you a texter or a talker? Mm, I like talking. Okay. Where would you go if you were invisible? Oh, if I was invisible. Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, maybe into the, I was going to say the halls of parliament, but they do video that. So I don't, <laughs> I don't have to. Um, I guess in, into groups that maybe have a, a very different view than myself, just to be able to, to listen in and, and get an understanding. Yeah. What do you believe 
that others think is crazy? That uh, land should be free. Ah, love it. That land can be free. Wonderful. And then how do you want to be remembered? As someone that cared for people and the earth and contributed my gift in a way that manifested that care for people and the earth. Beautiful. And then finally, fill in the blank. Turning your passion into a profession is. What gives meaning in life and allows life to be meaningful and wonderful. Zola, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been awesome. Thank you for having me.